Hey, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're beginning a brand new series called Jesus, Our High Priest. So turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, as Dr. Newfeld brings his first message in Jesus, Our High Priest. It's never wise to choose something that's inferior over something that's superior. You know, when both are offered and both are available, I mean, why would one take the lesser over against the greater? Now, in the spiritual realm, people often do. They, for instance, would choose that which is temporal for that which is eternal. A momentary pleasure is taken, an eternal pleasure is forsaken. In Mark 8, 36, Jesus said, For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And of course, there are many people that do just that. For the sake of this earthly life, they gain much. And in the end, when eternal ages roll by, they've lost everything. What folly, says Jesus. Now, this is an argument that appeals to self-interest. Every single one of us is interested in avoiding ruin. If we could choose life and joy over misery followed by death, I mean, we choose joy and life. We're interested in our well-being. It's self-interest that led to the drama that gave rise to the book of Hebrews. In the early days of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, a great many Jews became Christians. They recognized that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah, and these were days of great joy. And then things began to change. While Jews continued, at least for a few more years, to receive a measure of protection you know, for them to practice their religion, the new faith, in contrast, that is Christianity, received no protection. And this is how it went. Both Jews and Christians were monotheists. There was only one God. The Romans, on the other hand, they were polytheists. And furthermore, many of the Roman Caesars were thought of as gods. And in order to prove loyalty to Rome, one might be required to pour out offerings and to call Caesar Lord. Neither Jews nor Christians would do that. But because Judaism was an established religion, the Romans had found a way to grant the Jews an exception, a religious exemption. But Christians were unknown to Rome and they were held in suspicion. No such religious exemption was offered to them. And so the new Jewish believers in Christ, they were tempted to desert their newfound faith and go back to Judaism. I mean, this was a matter of self-interest. I mean, why not go back to a true and historic faith? Now, the book of Hebrews is written to show Jewish Christians that to desert Christ and to go back to Judaism, well, it's to go from that which is superior to that which is inferior. I mean, just think, says the writer of Hebrews, what you would give up. You'd give up Jesus. I mean, just how much would you give up if you had to abandon Jesus? Now, before we get into today's study, let's step back and see if we can answer that question for ourselves. See, if you identify as a Christian and are thinking of abandoning your faith, what would you actually lose? You know, many people only think of what they would gain. See, in many cases, they think they would gain a sense of freedom that they'd never had before. But that in itself is an illusion. The bondage of the flesh is a great burden that comes with the illusion of freedom. But putting that aside, what would you give up? And if you no longer had Jesus, what would you no longer have? The assurance of love and forgiveness from God? 
the assurance that he will cause all things to work together for your long-term good, the promises of eternity, the assurance of his love and care, the value of someone to run to in time of distress, the one who speaks meaning and hope into your life. What do you lose? See, the book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. It may have been that the Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to Judaism and they were acting in their perceived self-interest, but were they really? Had they considered the value of Jesus? The book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus over all things. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field for which one will gladly sell everything he or she has so that one can buy the field with that kind of an overwhelmingly valuable treasure. And today I'm beginning a short series, Hebrews 5 to 7. You know, in the past, I've already done a study of Hebrews 1 to 4. So to help us in the study before us, let me do a brief review of the first four chapters of Hebrews. I think if I were to do a summation of the first four chapters of the book, I would say, They're about the superiority of the person of Jesus. The book begins by giving what theologians might call a Christology, that is, a clear definition of who Jesus is. Jesus is not the reflection of the glory of God. No, no. He's the actual glory itself. He's the exact imprint of the divine nature. He is always, moment by moment, upholding the universe. In his very nature, he is God the Son. And in the fullness of time, God has spoken through the Old Testament prophets, but now he has spoken in the Son. God came to us clothed in human flesh. Indeed, says the writer of Hebrews, as great as Moses was, Jesus is infinitely greater. For Moses was a servant in the house of God. Jesus is a son in the house of God. And if under Moses, rebellion resulted in being denied entrance into the promised land, I mean, you've got to think of how much greater is the sin of rebellion against Jesus. That's the first four chapters. And we might think the argument has been made. The book of Hebrews contains 13 chapters, however, not four. The book is not only an argument for the supremacy of Christ over all things. The book also helps all Christians, Jewish and Gentile, to understand how the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was completed in Christ. See, to the Jewish believers, that would mean that the Old Testament priesthood, as well as the Old Testament sacrificial system, had been fulfilled once for all in Christ. And that would mean that Jewish believers are no longer required to go to the temple for sacrifice. The temple is now outdated. It's no longer necessary. Now, of course, in just a few years after this book was written, the Romans brought their armies into Jerusalem and they burned the Jewish temple to the ground. And to this day, there has been no temple. But there's a meaning for Gentile Christians here as well. And the meaning is that when we read the Old Testament, we're helped to understand how God's dealing with the Jews led to the coming of Jesus. Very well. What we will find in our study of Hebrews 5 to 7 is this. Having made the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels and Moses, we move now to discussing the priestly ministry of Jesus. Jesus is infinitely greater than the priests under the Mosaic Covenant. Jewish believers should not long for the Old Testament priesthood. It's been replaced by something infinitely greater. And then in chapters 8 to 10, the writer moves from the priestly ministry of Jesus to speak about the actual sacrificial ritual in the temple. But for our purposes, we're going to speak only of Jesus as our high priest. So let's begin to read. I'm reading Hebrews chapter 5, 1 to 3. 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now, this short statement is probably one of the most concise statements as to the function of the Old Testament priests. Why did the Old Testament have priests? How were they chosen? What was their function? Why were they important? Why did God set up a system of worship that required them? And what's gained by having them? Well, notice, as we begin our text, it says, for every high priest chosen from among men. We notice that the writer of Hebrews not only mentions priests, but he mentions the high priest. The high priest was the supreme religious ruler in Israel. His task was to give leadership to all the other priests and to hold them accountable for the tasks to which they were assigned. But there were certain tasks that only the high priest could perform. Only the high priest would wear the Urim and Thummim. These articles of clothing signified that he could go to God and know his will regarding a decision that Israel needed to make. But most importantly, only the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. The high priest did that on the Day of Atonement, in which he was to offer sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. And in this way, the issue of sins was brought to mind, as well as the mercy of God to forgive sins. So very well, Hebrews says that the high priest was chosen from among men. And we know that from our Bible, that Aaron, the brother of Moses, was chosen by God to be the first high priest. And after his death, the office passed on to Aaron's son. His name was Eliezer. And from what we know of the office in its early days, the office seems to always have been passed on through family lines. That is, the son of the last high priest would become the next high priest. So by the time of Jesus, from what I understand of the process, the high priest was always a Sadducee. From the best of my understanding, the high priest was always chosen from a relatively few influential priestly families. The position became highly political, as the high priest always dealt with the Romans. But that's not the point of Hebrews. The point is, the high priest was not a divine figure. He's human, even as we are. And given that he was human, he comes with all the promise and foibles that beset the human race. They were men, and so they were sinful men. That alone tells us the entire process is flawed. Jesus is not immune to our pains. He's taken our wounds upon himself, and Easter is God's proclamation of new life by the resurrection of Jesus. Before there's a resurrection, there must be a death. The Gospels give one-third of their chapters to focus on the last week of Jesus' life. This Passion Week reveals the thoughts, words, and actions of our Lord from Palm Sunday through Good Friday to resurrection morn. To encourage you in your preparations for Easter, this month we're offering a new eight-day devotional booklet called Quiet Spaces for Passion Week. It traces the events of Passion Week day by day and encourages you to reflect on God's grace. We invite you to request this free devotional today at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
problem with all religious leaders, be they popes or cardinals, priests or rabbis, mullahs or pastors, they're all sinners. And although the idea of a high priest is God's idea, still the occupant of that office was always fully human. And furthermore, the Hebrews text says he was appointed. Though the verb translated as appointed, that's a passive verb. That is, the high priest didn't act to appoint himself. See, the implication is that although there was a human process behind the appointment in the end, because the high priestly office was God's idea, the sovereign God was also behind each individual appointment. And we get to verse 4. We're going to see this very plainly. The high priest, no matter how flawed, is still appointed by God. And the next thing we notice is the job of the high priest. He is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That is, he is to represent people before God. He's the one who comes to God on behalf of the people. He does that, according to verse 1, by offering gifts and sacrifices to God for the sins that people have committed. The gifts and sacrifices he brings are the gifts and sacrifices that have been brought to him by the people. That is, the people bear the burden of bringing the gifts. The people are, however, prevented from bringing those gifts directly to God. They're not going to be accepted. Access to God is blocked to the people. However, God is made away by calling a high priest to go where people are forbidden from going. As to the actual gifts they're bringing, well, we find this phrase, gifts and sacrifices, and that's going to come up again in Hebrews 8, verse 3, gifts and sacrifices. The high priest is not permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies without having something to offer. If he comes empty-handed, God will kill him. Now, if I can jump ahead here, let's go to Romans 5, verse 2. There, Paul writes that we now have access by faith into his grace, that is, the grace of access to the Father is now given to us in Christ. We're invited to boldly go where in the past people were prevented from going. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In the Old Testament, access before God was blocked because of human sin. God had appointed a high priest to allow gifts and offerings to be accepted. So go to verse 2 in our text. Rather than feeling condemnation toward all the sinners— who always came to him to present their sin offerings, the high priest, if he's self-aware at all, deals with compassion and gentleness to this endless parade of sinners who, who come to him. He doesn't lose patience with them when someone comes and says, well, I came here last year with my sacrifices for sins, promising God that I'd behave differently, and I'm back again this year, bearing again the same sins I've committed this year as well. Now, Stop and consider how many of us today feel really the same way. You know, I'm a part of a church that makes a regular habit of congregationally confessing our sins every single Sunday. I think that's a biblical action. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer taught us to pray in that fashion. But every single Sunday in my church, we also call on the Holy Spirit to help us live a life of godliness, of holiness. And yet there we are the next Sunday and we're confessing our sins all over again. Some of us feel this even more intensely on an individual level. I mean, how many of us have confessed a sin only to come to God and confess the same sin again? Yeah. If you're walking with God, you've probably done that. And have you at times bowed your head in shame? Yeah, we probably have. And that's the idea we take to verse 2. The high priest accepts offerings from the same group of people year after year. They've sinned again. But he, if he is self-aware at all, doesn't condemn the worshiper. Hebrews says the reason he doesn't is because he too is beset by weakness. 
He's all too aware of his own sins, and that's why on the Day of Atonement, the first offering that Aaron, the first high priest, was to bring before God was an offering for his own sin. I know the local pastor of a church is not to be compared with a high priest in the Old Testament, but nonetheless, let me introduce this uncomfortable truth. Every local pastor who faithfully preaches the Bible is required from numerous Bible passages to warn people about their sins. But the very man who's doing that is also the man who is to be warned about his own sins. Yeah, we would anticipate that a spiritual leader is advanced in his growth in the power of the gospel, but we also know nonetheless he sins. High priests also sinned. They not only looked on the endless line of people all coming to offer their sacrifices, but they would, in those very faces, see his own face the sinner who needed to offer a sacrifice for himself. Now, in some ways, that, that's an advantage. He can, says Hebrews, deal gently with the sinner. He can be merciful. He's reminded of his own need for mercy. So how in the world can he be harsh with anyone else? He'd only condemn himself. So I need to stop here and add something that's, that's not here in the immediate text of Hebrews, but it is there in the Old Testament law. The Old Testament made a distinction between high-handed sins and sins of omission. Numbers 15 verse 22 begins with the words, but if you sin unintentionally. You know, on the other hand, there were sins for which no temple sacrifice would atone. As we carry on in our study of Hebrews, we're going to see that fully spelled out. We're going to find out that Jesus is able to atone for sins that no high priest in the Old Testament could atone for. But that's not the point here. The point here in the passage we're reading today is a very simple one. No high priest, if he's self-aware at all, is rough or judgmental towards the worshiper who comes to offer sacrifices. So what have we learned? The high priest didn't appoint himself. He's appointed by God. He's there to represent the people to God since God has ordained that the people may not approach him. But the high priest, although appointed by God and given a lofty role, is also a man beset by weakness. And that leads us to verse 3, which really sums the matter up. It says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, that verse merely reiterates what's been said. But this verse is making reference to Leviticus 9, verse 7. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. That is, all of God's people, by watching the high priest offer up a sin offering and a burnt offering, they're made aware of the weakness of their high priest. It's as if God has put him on a pedestal and he says to him, look, there's your high priest. He's a sinner. You know, in a sense, the high priest is being publicly humiliated in the eyes of the people. He's a sinner. And as we study our passage, we're going to make that point. Jesus, although he has now replaced the high priest, that Jesus is our great high priest. And we study Hebrews 7.27. We're going to read, he, that is Jesus, the one who has replaced the high priest within Judaism. Jesus, that Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. See, behind that is the necessary doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus. We encounter Jesus first in the wilderness when Satan seeks to subvert him, as he's successfully done with every other son and daughter of Adam. 
But this one is the first of Satan's assumed victims who never yields to him. The Bible writers say that when Satan left Jesus in the wilderness, that he did so for a time only to look for another opportunity. With each temptation, however, comes a firm resolve. Jesus will not sin. The first three verses in Hebrews chapter 5 set the stage for what's to follow. It's a statement that says to the Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to Judaism, we won't be persecuted as Jews, they thought, and of course they were wrong. Israel was to suffer horribly from the Romans in just a few years, but that's not the thought here in Hebrews. Hebrews anticipated that these Jewish Christians were looking back at the temple and thinking, look, if we just go back to Judaism, we're going to have a high priest who will deal gently with us. And what they hadn't considered, that they will deal with a high priest who is as much a sinner as they are. Indeed, in the case of Jesus, was it not the high priest who led the people to murder the Son of God? Yeah, it was the high priest. They were not only beset with weaknesses, their weaknesses had led the entire nation to sin. What then do we make of the opening of Hebrews 5 to 7, the passage of Scripture that describes Jesus as our great high priest? It's simply this. Nothing can replace Jesus. No priest, no prophet, no religious leader. They're all beset by weaknesses. They all come with defects. If you look at them, beware, for their sin will lead you astray. There's only one who will never lead you astray. And why, why, why would you abandon the only sure foundation there is for something that's vastly inferior to that? Dr. John, thanks so much. It's gonna be a great series. Let me ask you or begin with this question. You know, there's little question that we're all fallen, uh, that we're all inadequate and we all fail. How is it that we should have confidence in our spiritual leaders then? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we need to um, obey our leaders wherever we can, and we need to, you know, say to them that we're in, encouraging uh, them to continue to lead in a way that's godly. Um, we also need to recognize that in the end of the day that the best a leader can do is approximate Jesus himself. Ultimately, the only one who deserves disciples is Jesus, and that what we ask our leaders to do is to make Jesus real to us and the implications of what it means to follow him. Anything other than that is too much. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus, Our High Priest, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Did you know that the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is supported almost exclusively by its generous listeners? The Bible teaching of Dr. Newfeld that so many look for for their spiritual encouragement airs five days a week thanks to like-minded individuals who believe the message needs to be heard. And one of the most effective ways you can help Back to the Bible Canada continue to enrich lives with God's Word is by joining the Companions for the Gospel monthly partner program. By making a recurring monthly donation, you help provide a consistent stream of support, allowing this ministry to effectively plan and strategize for further outreach. So if you share our heart for resourcing people all over the world with unfiltered scriptural truth, 
then we invite you to join the Companions for the Gospel monthly partner program today. For more information, just visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.